Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome back, listeners. It's been a minute. You're in tune <laughs> with the Oxygen Starved podcast, your adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet or 11,060 feet, or I don't know what it is now. But uh, <laughs> I'm Christopher, one of your co-hosts, and with me is... I'm Stacy, your other co-host, and with us as always. Glad to have him back is our producer, Doug. Hi, Doug. Hey, Doug. Hi. Back from shoveling, back to production. Yay! <laughs> that is the uh, back and shoveling used in the same sentence. Is yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, this season, right? With all the right. snow. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. the, the chiropractors in the Eastern Sierra are going to be, you know, you better make one of them your best friends or you'll never get in to see them because <laughs> they're so busy. I think chiropractors. I'm bring Carl Sieberling out of the, out of retirement and back into practice. Just like, right. Ono city is trying to get him to get out of the snow plow and get back on the table for chiropractic. Now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listeners, we were caught up like just about every other Californian in the last month, basically by these atmospheric river storms. We had, we'd had a, yeah, brief pause planned for our podcast calendar and then storms happened and avalanches happened and all sorts of serious things happened and our work days and our lives went um, 20 different directions like a lot of you and uh, we pressed pause on the podcast for a while we're really happy to be back though and i'm going to take a quick second here and give a shout out to one of our favorite fans who was pinging me multiple times this last month when's the next episode coming out which is a little bit of nepotism it's my little brother adam so adam hi adam stacy says hi and hi to alberto too we're we're glad you're listening um (laughs) and you know because family is part of our listenership too right yes yeah, and for all for all the listeners who have, you know, been patient with us as we've had to deal with these little minor trials and tribulations, um, we really appreciate it. Appreciate you listening today. But still, um, tell me tell me about this winter. I mean, you've you've been back longer than I've been back. Mm-hmm. And this is incredible. Yeah, it's really unprecedented. Um, not only the, you know, we're used to having we we're used to having over 600 inches of snow for a season. We like when that happens. Right. The difference between when we've had 600 plus inches of snow in the past is that the storms are quite spread out and there's usually periods of warmth in, in between, you know, some warmth in between um, storms this season. That has not been the case. The storms have come pretty rapid fire one after another We've had four months since December of 100 plus inches in each of those four months. Incredible. Um, as of this point, as of March 22nd, we're, we're co- recording this on the 24th of March. We Mammoth Mountain is reporting 664 inches of snow. So that that translates to over 55 feet of snow. Oh gosh, um, it's it's mind boggling. um feel like all 55 feet is on the roof of their house i mean yes yes (laughs) and yeah and then you know we're impacted with the the aftermath of having you know 55 plus feet of snow and of course there's not that much in the town of mammoth lakes or in the outlining communities however there's still a lot Yeah. And I think some of it was unexpected. You know, uh, one focal point of these storms has been the Mono Basin. Yes. Or, you know, Mono Lake is, and it's flanked by Levining on the south and Mono City on the north. And Mono City, I understand, got record snowfall this season. Yes. Typically a a location in the county that doesn't get that much snow. So (laughs) people move there to not get so much snow. Yeah, exactly. And they were, you know, that whole community, because uh, an avalanche occurred, um, that whole community was really cut off for 
several weeks and only now are just being able to get out. Um, they even had the National Guard fly in and drop off water and food and um, to that community. So, you know, lots of impacts there, you know, bravo to the people, our producer, Doug included, who live there and had to endure that, you know, really, uh, they're champs. They really deserve a lot of credit. They really are. Those communities and, and everyone who lives between there and Bridgeport this season, mm-hmm. oh, really yeah. got it in the face and, 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 you know, digging out, um, involved digging out the highway into Nevada. So people who yeah. needed to get to Mammoth for work, their 40 minute commute turned into like a four hour commute. So it really was serious. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been quite a, quite an adventure. And we're, we want to acknowledge too, that it's not just only right. did Mammoth Lakes and Mono County and all of our communities experience this unprecedented winter, but nearly all the counties in California this winter have experienced some kind of weather events that they've never had before. So it's been, it's It's been been a lot for everybody. We feel your pain. (laughs) (laughs) There doesn't, there feels like, you know, and I, you and I both drive all over the County and there's no road right now that has not been affected in some way, either closed or potholes or, almost washed out or, you know, and at one point I was kind of laughing when you sent it to me a couple of weeks ago, cause you're on the emergency management meeting yes. around all of this. And you sent me a graphic of a storm impact for the state of California. And the only little portion of the state that was escaping the storm was Barstow. <laughs> was yeah. like, we should all just go to Barstow. We today. should just move there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it has really been, been crazy. And yeah, I spent, I have spent in the last month or so about sometimes three hours a day of my work day is spent on emergency management calls either for Mono County or for the state. And it's taken up, it's been taking up a lot of time. Now, a lot of people's time, but thank you for doing that because it's important. And we do want to give a shout out as well to all of the plow drivers, the Caltrans crews, the emergency people, yeah. the Cal Fire crews that are up here helping shovel snow off roofs, and everyone who's helping uh, just people cope and get through this winter because it's been there's been damage, people have been injured, um, and it just really has defined our lives for the last few months. Yeah. So we don't want to dwell on this. No. Uh, one, one more thank you, though. One more shout out I have to give to the National Weather Service. Oh um, yeah. Don and Chris, uh, who've, who've been our point people for Mono County, um, they are just, they're doing an amazing job. And it's incredible to see how on target they are um, in predicting these storms, almost down to the hour of when they're going to hit. So thanks, <laughs> thanks to them and yes. keep up keep up the good work. I mean, but don't bring us any more storms. We're, yeah, we're done. No, we're, we're yeah. Tuesday we're days of the week for us this season. Cause it feels like every Tuesday, every Tuesday, <laughs> but you know what? Tuesday is also when our podcast releases and hopefully we're back on our regular schedule and we thank you listeners for coming back and we will be back in just a couple minutes or a couple seconds really with our books portion. Oxygen, a colorless, Odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the B Books portion of our podcast. And, uh, you know, with so many weeks on pause, Stace, you and I read a lot of books, right? Yes. It's, it's you know, I, I have, I've liked that part of it. and and needing needing to have that escape to read and to kind of forget about 
the weather forecast for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I hope a, I hope a lot of our listeners have been able to do the same as well because I took it from that same perspective. I read quite a few things, palate cleansers and nonfiction and what have you, but I've zeroed in on one book to talk about. And I think you have two that you wanted to share, yeah. right? Yeah. What is it? So one one of the my most favorite books that I've read during these last couple of months is called The House of Eve. It's by Sadiqa Johnson, and it's a new book. It was just published in February of this year, and it was also a a Reese Witherspoon book club pick for for February. That's how I that's how I came across it. Was right, you know, little little you know blurb that popped up about her book club pick, and um, I just it was just a fascinating read. It went by it read so quickly. It was so well done. So the story is takes place in the 1950s. Um, there are two. It focuses on two women. Uh, the first being a 15 year old Ruby Pearsall, and Ruby is on track to be the first uh, person in her family to attend college. Um, she comes from a very disadvantaged home. She lives with her her aunt who. Um, takes care of her because her her own mother just doesn't have time or the desire to raise a daughter. The, her mm-hmm. mother's more um, more focused on her own love life and mm-hmm. you know just doesn't want her daughter around. So um, you know Ruby is a very she's very, very bright. She wants to be an ophthalmologist so that she can cure her grandmother's blindness. Um and then the other main character is Eleanor Quarles, and mm-hmm. she is a young lady from the Midwest who goes to Washington, D.C. to go to Howard University. And um, is, you know, she comes from very different circumstances than Ruby does. She comes from a very middle class background. She has lived in an integrated neighborhood for most of her life. And so she goes to Howard University, and there she finds out that there is actually a status level amongst the African-American people there based on how light-skinned they are. And Eleanor Mm -hmm. falls somewhere in the middle, but she meets this um, medical student named William Pride, who is a member of one of D.C.'s most elite black families. Mm -hmm. And when she first goes to meet his parents, she thinks she walks into their big mansion and sees that they, they're they're all what she thinks are all white people there. And it turns out, no, they, they were, they're not in fact white people. They're just very light skinned, but yet they make her feel like she's one of their help who are all very dark skinned. So they are the two characters that drive this story. Um, every chapter alternates um, who the narrator is um, mm-hmm. or who the, the main character, the point of view right. of the character. So the interesting thing that I found in this story also is that Ruby's chapters are all in, in first person, told in the first person, and right. Eleanor's... Eleanor's uh, chapters are all told in third person, which adds to the kind of the differences of of where they're coming from. Right. It kind Mm -hmm. of heightens how they they clash or how they, you know, just their differences. Um, You know, the themes are, you know, there's themes of racism, of classism, the gaping opportunity gaps between um, between these two women and then between the characters in their own social circles. Circles. Um, so it was just, it was so good. It just, I was so sad when it was over. It moved <laughs> really quickly. And I will say that although, um, you know, the story moves along and you're, you know, it all, like I said, alternating chapters. And then at one, at some point, the stories do come together. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about that. If they're alternating, is there some logical point where they kind of, because it sounds like the way you described it, they're geographically start out separate. Yes. One's in Philly and one's in DC at Howard University. Yes. And, and it's, you know, it's that way for most of the story. I will, I will say that I don't want to give in, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but at one point in the story, Ruby does come to DC and that's kind of where their, their stories kind of come together. Um, And it was, um, I I don't think it will give anything away. It, It comes together around the issue of pregnancy and having a baby. Mm-hmm. And um, it, which was it was a different that, world in the fifties and sixties, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you Can know, I ask it was, you? go ahead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. We're on Zencaster again because of all of the shutdowns and what have you, and and now we're talking over each other again. Like, I try not to do. I apologize. I, I, um, <laughs> Sorry, don't apologize to me. Listeners, sorry. We're, we're doing <laughs> no, no, the best no, no, no. we can. <laughs> Bear with us. <laughs> we are, but I want to um, ask you a question um, about this book because it will come up in my book as well. You know, Ruby's story is written from the first person, the I. This mm-hmm. is my experience. And, and Eleanor's is written from the third person, the she, right? Right. And, and what do you think the author's intent was in having those two? Because one of them sounds very introspective and very in the mind of, and the other sounds very, um, you know, distanced or like watching from the edge of the room kind of thing to me. I, I th- you know, that's a really, really good question. And I don't pretend to know the author's mind at all. But you know, what came across mm-hmm. was you definitely got a more personal, deep understanding of Ruby's psyche. Yeah, that you didn't, you know, that that I think because of, of the nature of her storyline had to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, right. we, we needed we needed to know more about what Ru- was actually going on in Ruby's mind and in her heart as she was going through these experiences. Whereas Eleanor, I it, because so much of what was happening to her was the because of the people around her, the external. right? Now, it wasn't necessarily her internal things that were going on. It was how people were, um, how people were relating to her. And that's why I think maybe it made it easier to write her in the third person. Sure. That that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And the way you describe it in the sense that like, she's coming up against societal structures strict that she's unfamiliar with because she's not of that DC, um, crowd basically she's from out of town um she's facing it so i I imagine the author does have to work to kind of illustrate what those challenges she faces are whereas ruby's she's still a teenager right correct so yeah it's kind of logical to me i guess now as i'm thinking it through that that um that is a really compelling voice to put in the first person yeah i i it just it made a lot of sense to the story you know and it also made it more a more of a unique read like mm-hmm. i you know because i'm kind of a grammar nerd and you know i those things like really jump out at me quickly right and so i noticed it right off the bat like yeah hey this is str- i've this is weird this is different and <laughs> um but i i appreciated it yeah you know i'm just trying to think of other books that i've i've read that might have had that kind of structure. And I'm thinking of, you know, Michael Cunningham's The Hours or others where there's characters that are set in present day. And then there Mm -hmm. are those characters that are set in past tense, right? Which are then definitely third person. And what's unique about Sadiqa Johnson's book is they're both set in the same time. So, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, they're, it's definitely a parallel story. Right. You know, they're they're moving along at the same, um, you know, in the in that same space. But the other, you know, one other thing, I mean, I I wonder if we could even consider this kind of historical fiction. 
mm-hmm. in a way because there are real episodes, you know, from mm-hmm. from real life that that occur in throughout the story. And and even one of the characters that's included is a woman named Dorothy Porter, who was a real person who worked at Howard University's library and mm-hmm. over 40 years amassed the largest collection of African and African-American and Caribbean art in the world. Um, wow. That collection is still in existence and it's still at, at Howard University. So, you know, she was a real person. And right. um, so, you know, that kind of added another layer um, to the to this book, but it um, really, really enjoyable. And you know how, how finicky I am about endings and this this book, I was so sad to see it end. I was like, wait, I want to find out more. What happens next? You know, don't, don't leave me now. Um, Maybe Cynica will write a follow-up. She might, she might. I, um, I want to go back and read her other book. Um, Yellow Wife Wait, was a big book. Yellow, Yellow Wife. Yeah, I, yeah. I really, it's on my list now to be read, but really, really well done. So that's The House of Eve by Sadiqa Johnson. And I encourage you to pick that up. How about you, Christopher? Yeah, thanks, Stace. Like you, I read quite a few books during this forced pause. <laughs> um, <laughs> fiction, nonfiction, all over the place, palate cleansers, some deep books. And there's one really creative fiction book that I read. It was recommended to me by a colleague that um, I now want to recommend to all of our listeners. It's called The Seven Moons of Molly Almeida by Shehan Karuna Tilaka. He's a Sri Lankan author. This is his second novel. It won the very prestigious Booker Prize for Fiction last year. And that prize is a fun one to follow because it's any novel that's written in English and published in the UK, but it includes uh, submissions from all around the world. So having a Sri Lankan author hit the prize list isn't isn't um, out of the norm for that. It just kind of makes mm-hmm. for a very creative list to pursue. Peruse, um, this book, Seven Moons, is part whodunit murder mystery, part political thriller, and part social satire with like this underlying mordant sense of humor that really comes across. And you'll understand why in a minute. So the premise is it, it's set in the throes of the Sri Lankan Civil War, which you know, some of us may remember of a certain age when it was in the news, um, when we were much younger, it began in the early eighties and it actually didn't stop until 2009 when over a hundred thousand people had either been killed or disappeared or tortured or jailed. It was that kind of civil war, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you do not have to know anything about this conflict going in. The author is very adept at stepping the reader into the context. It's a very complicated situation as most civil wars are. And, he really adeptly layers multiple layers of corruption and duplicity that are almost always closer than you think, which makes for a good uh, reading, right? Kind of sets up that Mm -hmm. tension. So the plot starts like a traditional murder mystery with a murder in the first chapter. And that's who our protagonist (laughs) is, Molly. He is killed in 1989. Molly is a photojournalist who found himself just wrapped up in the danger and throes of this war, all the wanton killing going on around him. He wants to document it um, because he sees the injustice behind it. And he has, in fact, hidden incriminating photographic evidence that if he can get it out of the wider world, he is convinced will blow through the smokescreen of this war and stop the fighting. But he is killed first. His body is chopped up and deposited in a lake along with many others like him. Um, And this isn't the spoiler. This is the start of the book. And this is where things really really kick off. So that's where we're chasing all through the story is who killed him. Yes. That's, that's kind of the, the mystery that needs to be solved. And this is where it also becomes uh, it kind of steps left of the conventional whodunit because this is where some magical realism starts to step in. Molly is transported to this kind of way station to the afterlife, kind of like it's it's not quite limbo, but it might as well be. And, mm-hmm. and the author describes this like comically bureaucratic, punctilious, and and just overcrowded with souls and lots of middle managers wandering around with clipboards barking orders at these recently deceased people. Um, and he is in fact pressured to quote go towards the light, which is a familiar phrase, right? Mm-hmm. And if he does, he's told that it will erase his memory and prepare him for what's next. Um, 
but he's just been killed and he knows this. So he resists. And he, in fact, learns that he can have seven days and nights to stay on Earth as a ghost and hopefully convince his two closest friends to find his killer and expose his hidden evidence to the world, hence the seven moons. Um, And if he succeeds within that time, he can still move to the light. um, But if he doesn't, he will fall prey to some darker forces that are beginning to taunt him. So that's kind of the premise of the book. And that's what plays out over the story. Now, here's why I'm recommending it, because it's kind of a unique thing. And and magical Mm -hmm. realism isn't necessarily my drug of choice. Um, (laughs) But this author, Karanuta Tilaka, really is a, he's a master of language. The writing is captivating. And as a political thriller and mystery, the plot really moves at a solid pace. And as a satire, his sense of humor keeps this really heavy subject bearable, right? You need humor if you're going to be writing about a civil war. Um, But it's the creative beauty of the writing that really drew me in. Now, this concept of placing Molly in a seven-day limbo state is an effective way to present to the average reader the complexities of this civil war, and since most of us are unfamiliar with Sri Lanka. um, And having it be in an overcrowded waiting room of confused recently deceased people lets the author convey the scale of the killing and the senselessness of it that's going on. And, and again, he, he uses this, this conceit to step you through the, the context of all that's going on from the vantage point of Molly's ghost, who can now travel to key places and people that he's associated with. Now, when I asked you that question earlier on about first person Mm -hmm. and third person tense. This is why I wanted to ask it because he has written the protagonist here in the second person you. So it's, it's not, I did this or he did this, but you did this. This was your reaction and reading it on the page made it interesting. Um, you know, but it really popped out when I, about halfway through, I swapped it out for an audiobook version because I was doing a lot of driving. And that's where this second-person narrative really popped out and made more sense. Um, listening to it, you realize it because he's positioning you as the protagonist, right? The listener, the right. reader is the protagonist. We're in Molly's head. And a voice is whispering over your shoulder, telling you what you did, what you said, how you feel, and what you're going to do next. And in that context, it's really kind of mesmerizing and spooky at the same time. Did it, um, did it feel at all like you were reading like a therapist notes? Or, <laughs> yeah, you know, like- actually. Yeah, kind of. I, you know, in a way, because um, that's kind of like that, you know, second person. Well, that's, how, is, that's how like a therapist would sit, would write like a summary statement, right? Like, right. you know, you did this and you thought this and it made you feel, you know. Exactly. Well, I've got a great example right up aligned with this, what you just said. Molly's ghost is in his mother's kitchen when his two friends tell her that Molly's been killed. And I won't give away her reaction, but what she says infuriates him. And he mm-hmm. grabs the tea kettle off the table and smashes it on the wall over her head in this kind of frustration. But then he realizes he's a ghost and the tea kettle is still sitting <laughs> on the table, you know, untouched. And that's where the voice of that narrator, to your point, says, this is when you realized your story was no longer yours to tell. You're dead. Other people could say right. of you whatever they want, and there's not a single thing you can do about it. And um, that was just kind of this kind of magical um, uh, logic to using that kind of second tense, second right. person narrative. Um, so you you met, if I may, you mentioned yeah. this was you know really heavily laden with satire. Does the satire come from the the other ghost characters, or is the satire just in the in the way that murders try to be solved? Both. Um, you know, it's kind of like you know, political satire and just like the stupidity of, of all that's going on. You know, there's Mm -hmm. kind of this assumed logic that people follow the rules and follow the law, but even the most, you know, law abiding are in fact breaking the law when they're everyone else's back is turned. But then he also with all, because he's in this limbo state, it's not just the people that are still alive that he's dealing with. It's all the other ghosts and ghouls around him in this limbo state with him. And they are just characters straight from character bill. They come with their own humor and really populate this stuff out. And that's where this book really reminded me closely of Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, which we've Mm -hmm. talked about on this podcast, that whole notion of, you know, 
um, President Lincoln's son is in the limbo while he's in that cemetery and Lincoln comes to visit him and all the other people who are dead in that cemetery each appear in that George Saunders book, right? So um, it's kind of a similar feeling with The Seven Moons of Molly Almeida. And in fact, the author has given Saunders credit with inspiring him to write this kind of notion. Like he's not trying to copy him. He's just trying, he's like, I wanted to see if I could write a book in that same space. Um, but mm-hmm. with a different kind of different story. Um, right. And there's just so much more about this book that I would say, but I, I, I won't, you know, what I will say finally is that Molly himself, you discover over the course of the book is a bit of an unreliable narrator. He is <laughs> of course a victim in the very first chapter with a really strong sense of justice, but you discover he was, and still is no angel. Um, mm. And, Finally, the reviewers love this book when it came out. It doesn't surprise me. It won the Booker Award. Um, the author, um, Karen, Utilika, Karen Karuna Tilaka, which I should really practice more, um, <laughs> he, he cited his own influences of being Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood, Michael Londachi, Stephen King, George Saunders, Kirk Vonnegut, Douglas Adams, all this list of authors that once he says these are the people who influenced my writing really makes sense when you've just finished reading his book that kind of gives you the idea of like compelling characters and well-placed plot and this dose of snarky humor around really difficult subjects so that's that's the seven moons of molly almeida you've got margaret atwood and michael ondace that you just reference are both booker award winners themselves so right exactly and ondace actually Yeah, he is in good company. And Ondachi is a Sri Lankan author himself, too. So, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, it was his second novel. His first novel came out to great acclaim. It was about a decade before he published this one. So he's a very, very careful and thoughtful writer that weaves a really good story. And I I think this is a a really good one. And, you know, we'll link it on our webpage. Yes, for sure. It sounds really good. I wonder if this whole idea or this device of using um, people as ghosts, you know, as a as a plot device or as, um, you know, a way to move through a story is becoming kind of a trope. You know, it might be because Saunders was hugely influential. And I I think there are other novels out there that do something very similar, right? It's almost kind of like the Greek chorus or, you know, depending on how they want to execute it. Yeah, yeah. But it can be effective if if it's really creatively written. Again, you know, I'm not someone who reads a whole lot of magical realism where there's a quote unquote real life story happening alongside, you know, ghosts and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. It's really, really unique. Thank you for sharing that. I'm excited to read it. So, yeah, once again, we will link these on our show page. This title was The Seven Moons of Molly Almeida. And your book title, stays. just a quick reminder. House, yeah, House of Eve by Sadika Johnson. So check them out, listeners, and let me know. let us know what you think. And what you were reading during all these storms. Yeah, and right. we will be right back with our interview. Yep. That's right. You're uh, atop the majestic Sierra Nevada, somewhere mm, right about 11,000 feet. You're exhilarated, but a little challenged. At the same time, the abundant altitude makes for not-so-abundant oxygen. And breathing deep is a deliberate choice. You sit down, you pour yourself some tea from the thermos in your pack, you're listening to the Oxygen Starved podcast, bi-weekly chats on Mono County Adventure, and on the world of books and literature, and chats with East Side denizens who help make the place pretty darn cool. Chats hosted by County Superintendent of Education Stacy Adler and Mono County Librarian Christopher Platt, both accustomed to the air up here. Thanks for making the trek. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the Conversation C portion of our podcast, and we're so happy today to have with us Les Perpal. Court Executive Officer for Mono County, former Mono County Office of Education employee, business manager extraordinaire. Welcome, Les. Well, oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Hi, Chris. Stace. We're see you. so glad that you're here and appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today. Sure. Happy to do it. 
So Les, we always start out our conversations uh, with our guests by asking, how did you come to be living and working in Mono County? Uh, that's a good one. Uh, back in 89, getting out of college, um, having grown up up in the Tahoe area, wanted to be back in the mountains, having gone to school in San Diego. So needed to be in a small town again, needed to be in the mountains, loved skiing, determined not to be a ski bum. <laughs> um, so hence not going back to Tahoe where I knew too many people and would get sucked in. And so I figured I'd move to Mammoth and coach skiing for a little while and see how that went and then get responsible and go back and get my master's and, or something, you know, right. some avenue would present itself and I would take a fork in the road and, and it would all work out. Well, you know, how that plays out. <laughs> it's a, it's a tough place to leave coach skiing for a couple of years and um, said, wow, this is a pretty good mistake of, well, probably a happy mistake, happy circumstance of staying for a summer. Typical story. Uh, summers are amazing. Right. Yes. Then I met my, my wife to be, and we started having a whole lot of fun in the summers, a lot of fun in the winters and um, just kind of evolved. So I, I've been here since 89. Um, just, I was wondering, I, I never sit down and do the math, but right. <laughs> well, I've been here a long time. And then <laughs> the mountain did their, their uh, 30, their recognition of employees with over 30 years of, of um, work at the mountain of um, employment. So um, Dewey got invited to, uh, the celebration. And then I got an invite and I'm like, wow, I guess I've been here more than 30 years. <laughs> so, it goes by fast, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, once a ski coach, always a ski coach. I've been doing it pretty much the whole time I've been here. Um, now really only part-time, um, a couple weekends a month, but love skiing with kids and still get to do that and have a career at Mono County Superior Court working with Great people, great clerics, awesome judges, um, and opening up uh, people's right to come into the court and, you know, have their day in court. That's amazing. You know, uh, over 30 years in Mammoth Lakes is, is makes you, I think, more than a local, right? <laughs> <laughs> Native, but, I mean, you've got a leg up on a lot of people. You've also seen a lot of change then. Right, Les? Like, sure, is, there anything, yeah. what, is there anything that sticks out to you about the way it used to be, like maybe in the early 90s compared to the way it is today? Shoulder seasons, I would say, without a doubt. Um, used to love the shoulder seasons. That six weeks in the spring, four to six weeks in the fall, uh, when the town was, it was for the locals. And, uh, you know, restaurants would close. All their staff would go on vacation for a month. Um, and now nobody can nobody can right. close because there's not enough places for people to eat anyway. Uh, very very difficult. Then, you know, it's a double edged sword, right? You, you need you need tourism. Um, I think they've done an amazing job at marketing this place. They could probably slow down a little bit now. <laughs> <laughs> Let some infrastructure build back up so we can we can have the capacity to offer a good a good product to the people that come up here um but yeah that's probably the biggest thing uh because back in the early days when you're a ski coach then you would go on the uh, uh, governor brown uh unemployment for <laughs> 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 a while buy a golf pass down in bishop and go down and play golf every day or go mountain biking every day in the spring and and then in the fall you you know try to get those last those, those last first descents or climbs up, um, you know, before the winter got too bad and get that last trip in before you wash and repeat. Right. So looking back in 30 years, I mean, everybody's talking about this. We talked about it at the beginning of this episode, but, you know, seeing a winter like this, have you, what's your experience with this level of weather? <laughs> 
you know, that's been kicked around a lot. Like, 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 Oh, this is definitely more snow than I've seen, you know, ever in my time. And I, I concur. <laughs> you would disagree. It's big. Yeah. Um, I, I think the things that are striking to me about it, besides the amount that I've shoveled um, at my own house, but uh, it's the, the town's um, capacity to remove the snow quick enough. Right. And, and on 395 uh, Caltrans, I mean, bless those guys' hearts. They're out there <laughs> battling the elements, working long shifts because they're undergunned. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a trying winter for everybody and we all just need to, you know, run a cup of coffee out to our plow driver or thank the Caltrans guy or thank the city worker or thank the, the county worker when you see him because they've been burning the candle at both ends, you know, so that we can continue to get around town. Um, so, you know, big winter, big winter aside, everybody's dealing with a lot, but those guys are really dealing with a whole bunch. And they really are. They're a big uh, debt of gratitude. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Guys. So tell us what do you about your role as the court executive officer? It's a big job. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, the administrative side of the court, um, the operational side, uh, assisting, you know, everything from facilities through IT, through strategic planning, um, through budget and all of that. Um, I... <laughs> Thank goodness I have people that do all that. <laughs> They're much uh, much smarter and subject matter er- experts in their own in their own areas. Uh, but I help facilitate that. I I deal with uh, new laws and regulations coming down from the Judicial Council of California and incorporate those into our operations. And basically, I'm here to. Um, take the, any of that administrative pressure off the judges so mm-hmm. that they can sit on the bench and hear their cases and um, improve access to justice for court users. So it's, a, it's an interesting job um, being a, a branch of state government. You know, we're not part of the county. We're we're not part of the city. People are often very confused about that. We are a branch of the government and um, we act, you know, in that capacity. And, and sometimes people don't understand that, that relationship. That's same could be said for the office of education. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, very true. I imagine, I imagine that uh, some people learned that um, at the last minute <laughs> <laughs> something has happened, right? You know, let's, uh, you, and I should mention the county libraries also have kind of function as the county law library. And we have two locations, one in Mammoth and one in Bridgeport up near both courthouses. Do you have responsibility over both those locations as well? Yeah. yeah. And, and we only have uh, court in Bridgeport on Tuesdays. Um, we do a criminal calendar up there, mostly um, for historic reasons, I mean that's that's a beautiful old building, and it's one of the oldest working courthouses in California. The jail is also there, so they w- they do a lot of the in custody matters there, where they can easily transport the um, the inmates over. Uh, you know, taking out the the long drive. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a county owned building, and so they their facilities uh, deal with that and all the infrastructure of that building. Um, outside of our own IT equipment that, you know, they give us a little uh, IT closet that we maintain. Uh, that takes a little bit of the pressure off me and and my staff. Um, the county is super responsive. They're great to work with, um, with running that building. Our building here in Mammoth Lakes is a judicial council owned building. So all of the big maintenance stuff is handled um by a contractor that uh, the judicial council um, contracts with, and they come once a once a month and do their preventative maintenance routines and things like that. So we don't we don't necessarily have to have that expertise on site, which is amazing. Um, and it's a 
at this point a 12 year old building so yeah it's, that went fast yeah it, it did go fast but it's nice to be in a new building right so right yeah, oh yeah okay. a lot better than an old one. Oh yeah envious of you right now Les. I, I get imagine then that you don't you're not necessarily running buckets around the leaks and stuff like that. Like many. No, no. <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, yeah, no, um, we've, we've had a little snow damage as of late, but uh, you know, got a team of um, engineers and things in, in Sacramento at the judicial council who are work, working on fixing those problems where Great. You, know, you would have to contract out and that would be very difficult. In wow. this, and in this, you know, rural community is there chris you're in a pretty new building too though right i mean lakes the library i i I give it all the props it is a very well constructed building and we're very thankful for that um uh we have some older facilities around the county including bridgeport um that many of us are dealing with um you know less you you were in the office of ed when i first joined here so you've been in your role now for a few years is there something um, surprising or unexpected about your role with the court that you hadn't expected when you first joined? Like the way it works or? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the whole thing, it's really pretty fascinating to me. The, uh, you know, the judicial process of it um, because of COVID we started um, remote proceedings and anybody can sign on to our zoom cast of, of court, any day that we hold court. Um, Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, I'm, I'm able to do that at my desk and I, I monitor court quite often um, just to see the process and, and mostly to kind of keep my ear to the ground on anything that might, might go a little wonky with the technology that I could perhaps facilitate and get it back on track. Um, But I just, the whole judicial process and how compassionate our judges are and uh, you know their their approach to justice and how even killed and court user centric they are you always not i i don't know my, my my impression was before working here was that most courts would act very uh in very strict and very narrow focus and nope, that's the law and da, 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 da. it's not like that at all. Um, mm. And it's not like TV. <laughs> that sensationalized bit is not, I mean, the, the amount of compassion and care that the judges uh, display on the bench is truly amazing. That's probably the biggest, you know, aha moment that I had. That's great. That's what that's, what people would want to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pleasantly surprised. I would say <laughs> that's great. So we've heard a little bit about your job. What do you like to do when you're not? No, what do you like to do when you're not working? And then I have to ask a side question: Are you still volunteering for the Long Valley Fire Department? Yeah, I am still on the fire department. Jeez, I don't even know how many years that's been. Probably forever. Yeah. <laughs> You started that department, right? <laughs> still haven't made chief, darn it. <laughs> still with Long Valley, still coaching skiing on the weekends. Um, when I'm not working, I'm out playing a uh, lot of mountain biking in the winter, a lot of skiing, ice skating, hiking, whatever I can do, sneaking away. When I'm not skiing, uh, sneaking away to go mountain biking out in Bishop. Uh, cross-country skiing can't wait i heard that the uh crowley lake is frozen and the skate skiing is getting really good on crowley so that is a, a amazing thing to do I'll be doing that here as soon as i can how often does um, it happen what's that how often does crowley freeze over enough to do that is that a regular it freezes over all the time what it really depends on is the amount of snow on top of the ice and the density of the snow okay um, when it's good, it's like a, like a pool table texture. It is just a little bit of give and glide forever. It's amazing. Awesome. Um, but I hear it's starting to set up pretty good. So, um, yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of summer activities around biking and hiking and backpacking. Um, my, uh, my family likes to backpack and we got into bikepacking 
last year. So we did um, well, a couple of years ago. We've done some hut to hut trips, uh, carrying all of our gear on our bikes. Um, went out to Catalina, rode around Catalina for four days camping. That was really fun. Oh, cool! So I'd love to do more of that in the, in the coming summer. That's great. How did you even hear about bike packing? I've never, that's the first time I've ever heard that phrase. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, who has moved to Park City found a, a website and we, um, she called me up and said, Hey, do you want to do this bike packing trip on the Colorado trail from Durango, Colorado to Moab, Utah? And I'm like, that seems like a long way. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was 260 miles or something on trail. Wow. And it was amazing. Though. It was an eight-day trip. And so she kind of got me into it. And I came back and found a kinder, gentler ride for uh, for the crew that I ride with around here. And so we did a five-day trip last summer. And then um, I've planned out like three more trips for this summer. So. Very fun. That yeah, sounds so cool. Go. We're going to do a bunch of trips that I've just mapped around here instead of going to Colorado or going to Utah or traveling. Nice. Oh, it sounds like so much fun. Yeah, good stuff. It does sound so, like fun. So we always ask our guests, Les, what is your, what are you reading now or what's your favorite book? Uh, Talk to us about uh, that. I just I just got done reading a couple of heavy books, um, so I, I kind of needed a little break from reality. So um, I picked up a Dean Koontz book <laughs> called The Other Emily, and I just love the way that guy writes. I mean, he he's just um, really poetic in his opening and the closing of chapters. It's he's just got a way with words. You know, the book is kind of disposable. It's it's just a, a weird mystery kind of thing about this guy who lost a girl and then all of a sudden he meets her again 10 years later after she died and she's still the same person so there's this whole kind of backstory about why like how does that happen and <laughs> um but i i just it's an easy book to not want to put down um mm -hmm. easy read it doesn't make you think very much <laughs> um there's tremendous value in those books. Yes. Oh, love he, it. He's written dozens. So of many. There's a yeah. reason he's a best-selling author. That one came out a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah, it did. It, it's an older book. It was just on my Kindle. And um, I, I just download books, throw them on my Kindle, think I'll get to them eventually. And <laughs> I, I tend to gravitate towards, I don't know, probably heavier, heavier reads and... Uh, For know, example, maybe, give us an example. Um, well, I just, I'm, all, oh, I'm also reading uh, No One's Talking About This Anymore, or No One's Talking About This, which is <laughs> that's kind of super lighthearted also. Um, that's by Patricia Lockwood, and it's, right. it's about this, this hyper, uh, like, online presence Twitter lady. She just tweets all the time, like some other people we know and uh, <laughs> doesn't always think about what she's saying, but just, uh, you know, comes out of her mouth and, or kind of onto the, onto the website. And then, uh, but so that's really easy read as well, but I just got done reading uh, the girl who smiles beads. Mm. I don't know if you read that mm -mm. great book, it's uh, by Clementine, my Raria or something like that. It's about uh, Rwandan refugees. Wow. Who traveled all the way to the United States. An amazing story of these, of these sisters and their, their struggles to get out of Rwanda and the genocide that was going on. Kind of heavy stuff. Um, Crying in H Mart was, was pretty heavy too. Great book though. Um, Laurie Anderson, uh, speak. Those are the three that I think I just finished up. Speak so, is a powerful, powerful book. Seriously powerful. And it's, it's for like middle, middle school and, and high school girls. And you know, that age level. And I was like, wow, this is, yeah. 
I mean, Laurie Anderson, what an amazing person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another award um, for her work. But all three of those books are really compelling. All three of them have won awards. A Girl Who Smiled Books or Smiled Beads. Um, No One Is Talking About This. Uh, Was shortlisted for the Booker Award, which is a you know an award I talked about earlier in this podcast. Um, Laurie Halls Anderson, um, you know, speak is you know she has been so influential to an entire generation of teenagers now. Amazing about difficult writing and talking about difficult topics, right? Um, These are great, great. You 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 read interesting stuff, Les. I'm not surprised. You know, I, I cheat a little bit. I, I go onto the New York Times bestseller list mm. well, and I pick out authors either that I know or interesting topics. I'll read a little blurb about the book, and then I'll go find it later. And I, I've got a running list. So, uh, yeah, I, I read a lot of books that are up for awards, but it's a really eclectic um, or diverse selection of books. I don't really ah. stick with a particular genre. Um, which keeps it good for me. I like to read two or three books at, at a time sometimes, um, but not when it's something like that. I usually get really into whatever I'm reading. <laughs> so we, so you've you've answered one of the one of my next questions. So we, you know, we have it's a big debate amongst our guests of who reads multiple books at a time and who is a one book at a time person. So you've already, you just addressed that, (laughs) but you also mentioned that you, you found a book on your Kindle. So are you a a electronic book reader or are you still, you know, do you still like the real book in your hands? Uh, I love a real book. Um, but the Kindle's kind of easier uh, you know, for travel, sure. when you're when you're backpacking or you're on your bike, or you just need to throw it in your when your pocket when you're going to be waiting at the doctor, mm-hmm. um, and that's where the you know the reading a couple of books at a time comes in. Right, um, you can sit down and and read. Uh, no one's talking about this uh, for two minutes, and. Mm-hmm cover a little bit and get a, get a little bit out of it. If you read two minutes of something else, it's sometimes always doesn't translate. So I, I like having that option. I got a couple of, you know, uh, magazines and newspaper articles in mm-hmm. that I can tap into as well. So yeah, I like the Kindle for, uh, for the ease and the, the uh, portability of it, but I love swinging in the hammock with a hard book too. Like a real, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Narcoleptic. Oh, thank you for, for addressing those, those hot topic issues. <laughs> well, yeah. I feel like I was just going to mention, you know, I often read two or three or four books at a time too. And, you know, very often I'm doing nonfiction, which you can kind of put up and put down by chapter and then go dive into something else for a little right. bit. Um, but I always like to have something of, uh, I'm not a Dean Koontz reader, but something of that caliber in the mix, a, something that's got a little bit of light. Stacy and I call these palate cleansers. You know, if you get too involved in a story and you just need to take your brain out, right. let somebody else do the work for you for 20 minutes or an hour. It's nice to have one of those those lighter titles with you. My my favorite authors for those are um, Douglas Copeland, for sure. Of course. And uh, yeah, you can probably predict that. <laughs> and uh, if in more more of the fantasy realm, Clive Barker was really good for that. Right. He had this book called Leave World that I've read like three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> we have both of those in the library. Uh, of course, you all, do. These, all these all these authors in the library. Well, and we will link all of those titles and authors in our show notes and our Instagram page. So our listeners can find them as well. And Les, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. You bet. This has been fun. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, you are welcome to come back anytime. And we, we really appreciate you being with us today. And listeners, we appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Oxygen Star podcast. Remember that you can find us on our Instagram page at O2Starved or on our website at theoxygenstarvedpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, hear what you're reading and how you're holding up this winter. 
and we appreciate you joining us today. So thanks so much. Take good care and we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.